Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 14 and a half of The Pod. We're going to give you the week to catch up on the last few incredibly long episodes. Yes, we know, we know. But this week, we don't come empty-handed. We have for you, our wonderful listeners, a buzzed history and an interview with the director, writer, and star of the great new film out now on demand entitled Stars and Strife. So put your feet up, relax, and get ready for episode 14.5. In this week's episode, we're going to explore the history of the police force and policing in America. The U.S. police force is a relatively modern invention, began through a shifting idea of public order and driven by economics and politics. So, before we delve into policing in America, a brief history, if you will, incorporating the rest of the world. Law enforcement can be traced back to a number of ancient civilizations. To ancient China, where it was carried out by prefects for thousands of years since it developed in both the Chu and Jin kingdoms of the spring and autumn period, which is approximately from 771 to 476 BC. The prefects were responsible for handling investigations and fielding minor judicial offense reports. In Babylonia, law enforcement tasks were initially entrusted to officials with military backgrounds or imperial magnates during the Old Babylonian period, ultimately delegated to officers present in both cities and rural settlements responsible for investigating petty crimes and carrying out arrests. In ancient Egypt, evidence of law enforcement exists as far back as the Old Kingdom period, spanning from 2686 to 2182 BC. There are records of an office known as Judge Commandant of the Police, dating to the 4th Dynasty. In ancient Greece, publicly owned slaves were used by magistrates as police for crowd control, handling prisoners, and making arrests. In the Roman Empire, the army initially provided security, bolstered by hired local watchmen. Magistrates investigated crimes, and under the reign of Augustus, 14 wards were created, protected by seven squads of a thousand men, who acted as firemen and night watchmen. They apprehended thieves and robbers, captured runaway slaves, guarded the baths at night, and stopped disturbances of the peace. There are many more examples of this, found in ancient India, the Persian Empire, who had a very well-organized police force, ancient Israel and Judah, pre-colonial Africa, pre-Columbian Mesoamerica with the Mayans, Aztecs, and Incas. As time went on, medieval Spain, Germany, France, with the great officers of the Crown of France, the Constabulary, and the Constable of France, and England. England's system was introduced under Alfred the Great, where communities were divided into groups of ten families called tithings, each of which was overseen by a chief tithingman. Every household head was responsible for the good behavior of his own family, and the good behavior of other members of his tithing. Members of tithings were responsible for raising what they called hue and cry, upon witnessing or learning of a crime, and these men were also responsible for capturing the criminal. The person captured would be brought before the chief tithingman, who would determine guilt or innocence and punishment. The hundreds were governed by administrative divisions known as shires, the rough equivalent of a modern county overseen by a Shire Reeve, from which the term Sheriff evolved. The Shire Reeve held the power of Posse Comitatus, also the name of a West Wing episode, meaning he could gather the men of his Shire to pursue a criminal. The first centrally organized and uniformed police force was created by the government of King Louis in 1667 to police the city of Paris, then the largest city in Europe. This was copied by the English, who borrowed the word police, and of course, instated by colonial America. Policing in colonial America had been informal and imperfect at best, based on a for-profit, privately funded system that employed people part-time. Towns also relied on a night watch, which was a volunteer-based system in order to look out for fellow colonists engaging in prostitution or gambling. Boston started a night watch in 1636, and New York and Philadelphia followed in 1658 and 1700 respectively. However, this system was made less efficient by the watchmen sleeping and drinking on the job, and made even more difficult by the implementation of the watch duty as form of punishment. As communities grew in size, the night watch system was quickly rendered useless. The first publicly funded organized police force with officers on a duty full-time was created in Boston in 1838. Boston was a very large shipping commercial center, and businesses have been privately hiring people to protect their property and safeguard the transport of their goods. These merchants devised a way to save money by transferring to the cost of maintaining a police force to citizens by arguing that it was for the, quote, collective good. Following Boston were New York City in 1845, Albany, New York, and Chicago in 1851, New Orleans and Cincinnati in 1853, Philadelphia in 1855, and Newark, New Jersey, and Baltimore in 1857. By the 1880s, all major U.S. cities had municipal police forces in place. These modern police organizations shared similar characteristics. They were publicly supported and bureaucratic in form. Officers were full-time employees, departments had permanent and fixed rules and procedures, and police departments were accountable to a central governmental authority. 
important to note, as highlighted by Hawk Newsom in this week's interview, the southern states developed policing to a very different end. The genesis of the modern police organization in the South is the, quote, slave patrol, the first formal example of this being created in the Carolina colonies in 1704. Slave patrols had three primary functions, to chase down, apprehend, and return to their owners, runaway slaves, to provide a form of organized terror to deter slave revolts, and to maintain a form of discipline for slave workers who were subject to summary justice outside the law if they violated any plantation rules. These organizations, while began as vigilante-style groups, evolved into modern Southern police departments, primarily as a means of controlling freed slaves who were now laborers, working in agricultural caste systems, and enforcing Jim Crow segregation laws, designed to deny freed slaves equal rights and access to the political system. Police forces in those days were meant to maintain public order, but this phrase became politicized far too quickly. Fears of labor union organizers and large waves of Catholic, Irish, Italian, German, and Eastern European immigrants drove the call for preservation of, quote, law and order, or at least the version of it promoted by dominant interests. Sound like anyone else we know? As political machines drove the late 19th century, police captains and sergeants for each precinct were often picked by the local political party ward leader, who often owned taverns or ran street gangs that intimidated voters. This situation was exacerbated during Prohibition, leading then-President Herbert Hoover to appoint the Wickersham Commission in 1929 to investigate the ineffectiveness of law enforcement nationwide. To make police independent from political party ward leaders, the map of police precincts was changed so that they would not correspond with political wards. This also ushered in private police forces and detective agencies to help stop train robberies and prevent strikes. Thanks to August Vollmer, known as the father of modern policing, officers went to college and patrolled the neighborhoods they lived in on foot. There was a focus on sociology, social work, psychology, and management in police work. A system was also created for juveniles to be tried and punished instead of trying them as adults. As organized crime began to take shape and protest riots and petty crimes were on the rise, the Department of Treasury, in response, created the T-Men, a group of 4,000 men who were charged with enforcing the laws of prohibition. State governments also started creating their own police forces in the early 1900s to stop the spread of crime in cities. In the 1920s, J. Edgar Hoover created the FBI and changed the face of police work. Hoover also made sure that local forces were fighting street crimes and officers patrolled neighborhoods by car. As the 1960s rolled around, the black community began to challenge the way police were treating them. Peaceful protests broke out in the South, and in response, violent measures were used to keep order. Policemen at the time were also profiling the LGBTQ community in cities all over the U.S. by raiding bars and nightclubs and arresting patrons. This ultimately sparked the gay rights movement after the Stonewall Inn incident in 1969. The 1970s saw a return to community policing, placing minority officers in minority neighborhoods, and enlisting the help of the community to aid in policing the neighborhood. This style of policing gained popularity all the way through the 1990s. By the early 2000s, two-thirds of police forces across the U.S. implemented community policing policies. In the 1990s, crime rates in the U.S. began to decline so much that it had halved by 2015. Research cited by the Brennan Center for Justice found that hiring more police officers helped decrease crime. According to the research, up to 10% of the decrease in crime in the 90s was due to hiring more police. Modern policing would change in 1999 after the Columbine shooting and again in 2001 after 9-11, including not only counterterrorism but also the adoption of an all-crimes approach, striking a balance between criminal intelligence and intelligence related to terrorist threats. While this police work was revered in some communities, 9-11 saw the dividing line as some communities began to speak of experiences with racial profiling. This saw police departments utilize tactics like New York City's stop and frisk, in which police officers could stop anyone on the street they deemed suspicious and pat the person down. There was much debate over these tactics, as fear of further terrorism threatened the country, and as evidence shows, the police were disproportionately targeting minorities in these cases. Then, of course, in 2014, we had Eric Gardner and Michael Brown, in which we saw the beginning of the mandatory body camera instituted. By 2016, almost half of the police forces in the U.S. implemented policies that required body cameras for police officers. These cameras have captured violent and contentious moments between police and civilians, and have also captured acts of community work carried out by officers. In March 2020, for example, a supervisor in a county in Georgia was auditing body camera footage and found two officers taking a birthday cake to a little girl after finding out her mom couldn't afford one. Of course, this brings us to George Floyd and today's call for either reform or complete abolishment of our policing system. I will leave you with two quotes by two incredible presidents, fittingly each on either side of the aisle. John F. Kennedy said, let us not seek the Republican answer or the Democratic answer, but the right answer. Let us not seek to fix the blame for the past. Let us accept our own responsibility for the future. And Abraham Lincoln said, The dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. The occasion is piled high with difficulty. 
and we must rise with the occasion. As our case is new, so we must think anew and act anew. This has been Buzzed History. Okay, we have a really exciting interview for you this week on DTM. We have two gentlemen from the new feature film from executive producer Barry Levinson, who is the director of Rain Man, Good Morning Vietnam, and Tin Men, if you didn't know. The movie is called Stars and Strife. Stars and Strife explores the systemic hatred plaguing our country and what our nation needs to do to solve its big problems. The film explores the stories and experiences of an all-star cast, including three former White House Chiefs of Staff, James Baker, Leon Panetta, and Rahm Emanuel, and the author of Tiger Mom, Amy Chua, among others. While our country quickly approaches a pivotal presidential election, this film is exceptionally well-timed to ask the tough questions about why our country is so deeply divided and what we need to do now. From the film, we have David Smick, the writer and director of the film, a global macroeconomic strategist, investor, magazine editor, and New York Times best-selling author. David has written for the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. He has appeared as a television commentator on CNN, Fox, CNBC, Charlie Rose, and PBS. And we also have Hawk Newsom, who appears in the film, is a co-founder of the Greater New York Chapter of Black Lives Matter, and a former New York City Council candidate. Hawk has dedicated his adult life to the betterment of his community and our nation as a whole. With that being said, enjoy our interview with David Smick and Hawk Newsom from the film Stars and Strife. You 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 invited me on here. They're the enemy. No, I will not. Willing to bring this country to its knees. Not the American way. Why? I'm worried about our country gorging on hate. Something's gone very wrong in the fabric of American society, which leaves people vulnerable to the appeal of the political hate industry. We've always had partisanship. We've never had this level of dysfunction. But both of our major political parties contains a lot of old people, and before people reach the stage of dementia, they often turn nasty. Are you stupid? All the damn time! We live in a zero-sum world. We are absolutely convinced that for one side to get ahead, the other side has got to lose. We do face this real danger of a center falling apart and the country being guided by the extremists on both sides. America is like a dysfunctional couple on the way to divorce court. Politics isn't broken, it's fixed. What we're doing is repeating the mistakes of the 30s. I hear gunshots and I turn around and then I see a terrorist. My godfather was David Duke. Many Americans are lonely, so they reach out to these activist groups and political parties. And the effect is almost like a drug. It's not just social media, it's all kinds of media. You gotta turn it off. We have to come together as a country by breaking the habit of contempt. The problems we're having today, they pale in comparison to the problems we had in advance of the Civil War. We've prevailed over those. We will prevail over these. It took a global pandemic to finally bring us together. A lot of Americans made us proud, but will this unity last? We want to come together, but we have to do it in a real way. Washington's not gonna change from the top down. It's going to change from the bottom up. When we elect new representatives who say the most important thing to them is not party, it's country. We've proven as a nation, you give us a mountain to climb, and we'll show you how to climb it. So, uh, you know, before we get into some of the deeper questions about the movement that you're involved in and the movie and everything, you know, tell us a little bit about why you felt you needed to make this movie now and some of the things you learned along the way as you were making it. People ask me why, why a movie? They said, we, you know, uh, nothing about making movies and it's true, but I had, um, I've always had an outside project. I work in finance. I work with a bunch of hedge funds uh, in global finance, but I'm also worried about the country. And I wrote two books, both of them were, were bestsellers, and they were in finance, so it's limited audience. But one, particularly one, was the world is curved, and it um, said we're going to have a financial crisis, and so it was a very, very, you know, everybody has a stroke of luck once, so produce <laughs> a book, and boom, boom, you're on CNN 58 times or something like that. But anyway, I I began worrying about this epidemic of hate. 
that see, and division that seemed to be sweeping across the country. And I said, I think I want to do a film about that. Books are fine, but I really want to see if we could do a documentary. So I went to three of the biggest documentary people that I was aware of, and I was able to get meetings with them. I, one was, um, they all were Academy Award winners. One I met with his agent. And, they all, and I told them, I want to do a film on this subject, that there's a hate industry that's getting rich and powerful promoting division. We all know who they are, but they're, it's actually bigger than that. It's, a, it's, a, it's part of a huge infrastructure that it promotes division promotes anger, contempt. I don't think it's good for our kids or our grandkids to have that kind of a, of a system. Everybody turned me down. I mean, I went to the top guys. I said, I'll put up the money. You can have total editorial freedom. I said, I don't want to talk about the presidential campaign. I'm not interested in that. That's cable news and the internet are doing that 24 seven. Let's talk about bigger issues, long-term, for the country. Everybody said no. One guy said, well, documentaries about ideas, they don't work. Nobody does documentaries about ideas. I said, well, how about an inconvenient truth? <laughs> you know, made, oh yeah, that one. And I rattled off a couple others. Long story short, I'd said, I'm going to go and do this thing myself. I, I was going to leave it. I was going to drop the project, but then I said, I can figure this out. So I I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and hire the right people and see if I can produce a documentary. So the next thing I did was I sent an email to people I knew from 40 years in Washington uh, who had, I call it, special and unique experiences. And uh, people like James Baker, who had been chief of staff for Reagan and then was a treasury secretary and a, and a uh, secretary of state. Then I went to Leon Panetta. Leon had been you know, Secretary of the, of the Defense for President Obama. And I went to Rahm Emanuel, who was then just finishing up as mayor of Chicago. Uh, I just kept, I threw, I went to Greenspan, who's an old friend, and I sent everybody this email. And I said, I've never done a documentary before, but I want to do this. Would you participate? Here's what it's about. And 90% said, I'm in. So. I knew there was a worry, and they all had that same concern. They were tired of the, they're tired of the presidential campaign. They saw a country that was probably eighty percent exhausted, bewildered by what was going on, deeply worried. It doesn't mean they all agreed, but they all kind of had this sense that our leaders should be solving problems, not basically at war with each other and. Uh, it doesn't mean there aren't differences, but so that was the premise of the whole thing, and it and it uh, and it took off, and and uh, I was amazed at how many people, you know, I went to an Academy Award-winning director, an icon, Barry Levinson. I said, I've never done a film, but I want you to look at my film, and he said, this is this is very compelling. This is where the country is. So we got talking. He became an advisor. One day I said, why don't you be the executive producer? I said, you're giving me all this great advice. So he did. He became, which told me that there is a, there's a deep interest right now in this subject, which is the subject of empathy and the subject of, it's not just hate, it's not just division, it's empathy. The lack of empathy and the lack of compromise in American life and in American politics. And I think People were worried, and I think that's why I just saw some uh, data from our the digital company that's promoting our film, and they said it's amazing. There's a huge interest in New York, even bigger interest in L.A. and Chicago, much more so than in Washington. Twice, uh, two and a half times the interest in L.A. as there is in Washington, because Washington is part of that hate industry. They said, "Oh, we don't want anything to do with that." Yeah, there. I mean, there. It, we've we've been saying for a while there is a political incentive to exploiting those divisions for both and sides, finan financial yeah. as well, in financial, terms of the media. What you speak about, yeah. you know, you keep people angered, and you have something to run on for the next. You stay in power because you have something to run on, and that's why we see over and over again a lot of politicians not even trying to solve the problems, but using those problems to divide us even further. Is definitely a problem that is happening on both sides. 
look at this presidential campaign we have coming up. It is two candidates whose mission is to say that the other guy is worse than they are. Now, if one of those candidates actually said, I have an agenda for the country, and it was, and I have actually an agenda that's not this absurdist agenda that says it's all one side, but actually, you know, issues where there are large majorities. I act out in, the, in my film, I outlined some of those, but if you got them to the floor, they'd pass immediately. Our system now needs to be reformed, a political system. We have a system that rewards people not for solving problems or for offering ideas and visions. They, they, they get rewarded for making it clear how bad the other side is. I just think people are tired, and, and they just, particularly with the coronavirus, they are afraid. Their kids are afraid. They're just... They just don't know what to do. They're kind of going along with all the back and forth in the presidential race, but I don't think they're they're at all optimistic. And I think that's the problem. Hey, Hawk hey, joined hey Hawk. How are you, Hawk? <laughs> What's up, man? Hey, hey. My hero. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. You're my hero. <laughs> We um we, we literally just got off of a plane. Well, I've I've been blabbing away here, but I told him that you're my hero, that you're my teacher, that you taught me a lot. And one of the things you taught me, you told me about um, the husband of a friend of yours who worked in your organization, and um, he was put in the back of a police car, and he and he cried you know eleven times, and it was this horror show. And then I'm watching two years later what we've just seen in the last couple months. And I said, you know, I, I remember every word you said, which is you described this. You said, it is not every cop, but there are these monsters. And the others are afraid to say anything because they're afraid, I don't know, that, that they'll get whatever reason. And we have to change that culture anyway. But, but I, 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 I kept thinking. And when I look at the film, sometimes I think that. The, the, the footage of your friend's husband, you know, just it, it, I thought it was, you know, George Floyd. I mean, um, just, Absolutely. you know, I just thought, whoa, what is this? So anyway, but um, great to have you uh, here. You're, you're, he's the star of our film. Everybody, every, <laughs> um, every screening we had, we had two in Hollywood. We had, Two on the East Coast, and they, you know, people would fill out these producers and directors. They, they fill out the the, the form, and and Hawk always said, "Who's your favorite person in the film?" And, and uh, it was always Hawk, which is terrific. But anyway, let me stop here. So you know, we, we Hawk, we asked before you got here. We had about twenty minutes where we were talking to David and doing some softball questions. And, and, you know, just about uh -oh. the movie and stuff. We do have some, some a little more intense questions. I hate to hit you with them right away since you just got off, off the flight. So why don't, uh -oh. you know, why, why don't we go back just a little bit and, and tell us a little bit about your experience with making the movie since we already got David's. Oh, wow. It was, um, it was super, super, super cool. I was interested, to say the least, because I think that we have to have some sort of dialogue. I, ha I think that people have to have some sort of uh, understanding. And what we do in the movement is we try to center the most oppressed people, right? So this was the movie that was going to tell the story from a lot of different sides. And it was sane. It was rational. And, you know, it, it, was, it was about American politics and, 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 and just our culture as a people. And how greed is pretty much dominating the world and, and what's what was once, you know, bad has become good and accepted and what's what's good is now bad. It's, it's just so much confusion. You know, the day that we were filming, I met with David in the South Bronx and um, they're, 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 they're really developing a lot of areas in the South Bronx. And, and we sat down, we had coffee for about an hour, hour and a half. And it was like, you know, it was like, you know, you're, 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 you're chatting to a friend. Um, I'm sorry. I'm very straightforward. Yeah. It was like, we were shooting, yeah. you know what <laughs> I mean? We for about, for about uh, an hour and a half. And then we went filmed at this really cool, um, it's called the beat stroll. It's like this hip hop 
okay. stroke. You know what I mean? And it was just really, really cool to be doing that in that space and just speaking truths. You know what I mean? Not being forced to order anything down, but just giving people perspective. I'm always interested in giving people perspective when I'm not screaming and yelling like <laughs> people we can do. <laughs> so speaking of perspective, I think it's a good jumping off point. Today, obviously, a horrendous video was released that showed police officers shooting uh, Jacob Black, a man, several times in the back while his kids were in the car watching the entire exchange. Now, rather than our politicians imploring people to wait for all the details to come out before we sentence anyone publicly, it almost seems as though everyone immediately jumps to the most sinister conclusions for political purposes, which exa exacerbates the tension. So no, first of all, do you find this to be true? And if so, do you think our elected officials need to take more of a measured approach and encourage the public to let the investigative process play out? I think that the um, elected officials are pretty much full of crap. Um, I think that nobody's telling the truth and nobody's truly seeking uh, solutions. What people are doing is they're throwing gasoline on the fire, right? So... Okay, when 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 George Floyd happened, everybody said let's stop the choke, let's let's ban the chokehold, and everybody's passed legislation across the country. They could have did that four years ago, five years ago, Eric Garner, right? If they really cared, right? Because everybody was just as moved, maybe a little bit less, by the Eric Gardner case. So when what we're looking at now is a situation where you could prosecute police for misconduct. Um, there's, there's, there's something that we've circulated throughout politics across the country, and it's something called the Blue Wall Bill. And pretty much if an officer lies on a report, that officer gets prosecuted and sent to jail for one to three years. There you have it. It's, it's as simple as this. If an uh, officer commits an act of brutality and you lie to cover him, then you both go to jail. You know what I mean? This is a quick fix and people are politicizing everything, but not really seeking true solutions. Right, reactionary. Right. And the yeah. truth is that both parties came together and said, this culture has got to stop. This, this, and we're behind this legislation. These guys would be afraid. They'd say, whoa. But now they know well, they'll have some, you know, some ugly corner that will support them. But if they felt like both sides we're in lockstep and said, this is it. No more. You know, you want right. to do that stuff? You want to sit and idly watch and say, well, what am I doing? Well, you know, that, that, those days are over. You're as guilty as, 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 as and in that culture, I, my instinct is if, if they knew that both sides were, were backstopping it and then saying things would change quickly. To make one, uh, you know, a big change, the first thing we have to do is, is start, remembering or at least expecting that the other side is acting in good faith because we've gotten to the place where both sides think the other side is evil and corrupt all the time. So you're never going to trust anything anyone says. So I just noticed with this situation that happened today, right away, the right wing and the me, uh, you know, is, is saying, well, let's wait for all the evidence and already blaming the black lives matter movement and, and attributing motive to them. And the left is doing the exact opposite. So there's just no middle ground. There's nobody who is just willing to say, let's let's see how things play out. Let's slow down. Let's take the temperature down. It's 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 really hard. Um, you know, me being in this movement to to give anyone the benefit of the doubt. You know what I mean? Like it's it's really hard for me to say, hey, let's figure out what that cop saw when all I saw was this man being shot in the back, right? I saw this man getting in his car with his kids and you had six witnesses testify that he was breaking up a fight. And it's, it, it happens all the time. Uh, uh, yeah. A, a black man is really trying to intervene and stop a fight. And he's accused as being an aggressor. Right. And, and, and when you raise your voice and you assert your rights, the police don't deescalate. They escalate situations. Now you mean to tell me, there wasn't a tackle that could have been implored. There wasn't a taser that could have been used. This is why, like, like people are, are legitimately past the point of talking, right? They go straight to judgment because it's like enough is enough. I'm, I'm just so, so, so 
tired of of complaining and no one listening. But I, I think the problem lies in the government. Like David was saying, like like it's 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 it's, it's both sides politicizing everything and not really changing anything. What I was saying earlier about centering the most oppressed people, right? That means the people who suffer the most trauma, the most pain. Let's open our ears and hear what they have to say. And one of the things is that we have to change policing as we know it. Maybe there's a better way to make people obey the laws. Does that look like social workers? Does it look like so, I don't so know? So with with that, that's a good jumping off point for my next question. You know, Justin classifies himself as a moderate Republican. I classify myself as a moderate Democrat. Uh, one of the things we have in common, though, is that we both strongly do support law enforcement. We have friends that are cops, uh, and we but we do agree at the same time that systemic changes need to be made, especially in police training. Um, in order to fix these problems of police brutality that are facing, uh, m- you know, mainly minority communities. So you have called, we, we watched some of your YouTube videos and we've, we, you know, we see that you've called for defunding the police. Uh, can you explain a little bit about what that means to you? Because it has been so distorted by both sides at this point. I think nobody knows what it means. And I want to give you the benefit of the doubt that it's, it's coming from a, a, a place of good faith. Right on. Uh, when people explain complicated concepts to me i always say spoon feed right i'm just going to give it to you really simple right there are reasons that people commit crime poverty desperation mental illness instead of using the money to punish these people and police them invest in them early so you can alleviate the need to commit crime or these occurrences so it looks like uh economic empowerment right it looks like mental health. It looks like making people employable, giving people a decent education. So, like, people basically what we're saying is, okay, NYPD has $11 billion. Let's take that money and put it in schools. Let's take that money and put it in communities to teach people um, about technology, to teach people how to be employable. And lastly, there are these groups called violence interrupters in New York City. And they're ex-gang members, like they're ex-offenders. Uh, 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 These are uh, formerly incarcerated people, and they are better at reducing murder rates than the police, right? But no one is really talking about that. Like these, are, these they, when you say defund the police, you you're in essence saying put the money back into the people and develop better human beings. Period. Right. So the exaggeration, the exaggeration from from right wing media that you you mean get rid of police altogether is not what you mean at all when you say defund the police. Well, actually, we want to get rid of police altogether because you have to think about where policing started. Right, the first instances of policing in this country were the fugitive slave patrols. Right, which is what inherently racist. So if we go back to the beginning and look at everything that followed policing is racist in america and, and and one of the great things about this this film stars and strife is we're dealing with uncomfortable truths right and you don't you you know you have friends i have friends in law enforcement some of whom don't speak to me anymore but um <laughs> at least are family members who like blackballed me but um, but um but the reality of it is is that like, let's say, um, I, I believe they did it in San Francisco. Instead of using the majority of calls police receive are for mental health issues. And now they're deploying social workers, right? And, and, and they're trying it in Minneapolis as well. So it's like, you know what? Let's just revamp this whole system. We don't even have to call it police anymore. We could invest in the community so the community could police itself. And um, like I said, it's all about language, right? So yes, abolish the police as we know it today and create a new system like like a computer. That, uh, our cell phones were unimaginable, what, 20 years ago, except for people who were in the know. We just have to rethink how to make people obey the law and rethink what causes people to break the law. It, it's an interesting point. You seem to be saying, let's reinvent the police. But- in a way that that makes them more effective and more community oriented and all those. One of the things that I would add here is that 
you know, our leaders maybe need a little bit of common sense. So, I mean, what are we going through here? We've had a pandemic. We have the entire economy shut down. We have particularly in the, in the African-American community, huge sudden rise in unemployment. We got people who half the country started out couldn't afford a $400 unexpected health or, you know, a bill or, or car repair. So on top of that, we have this uncertainty, and I've seen these polls. It doesn't matter, white, black, across the country, you, people are depressed. People are down. They're, they're, they're uncertain. They're fearful. And why would there not be some common sense among our leaders to, to express to police departments, this is not the time. This is the time to, to be sensitive. People are frustrated. They're going to do and say things they might not say uh, at other times. Back off. This is these are extraordinary times, and it just beyond me. So instead, we got every the, the, these political sides trying to inflame the thing and and uh, to take a cheesy political advantage of it. But I understand where you're coming from in terms of where policing began, but I think we can agree that's not yeah. necessarily where it's ended up. It's not where it is now. So why? Why does that mean defunding one organization in lieu of another? Is there not room for both? Because social workers aren't necessarily going to stop a violent act, even if it's coming from a mental issue. And why doesn't that mean reform for you, like hiring practices, training? Why isn't it changing the system that we have now and, and molding it into something that works for both sides? I understand what you're saying and where you're coming from. But if you look at the era of mass incarceration, right? You look at the way blacks are prosecuted for crimes when they have similar re police records, criminal records, and similar uh, uh, just personal history as whites. And black people get harsher punishments. There is racism in these systems. And we just haven't moved away from it. You know what I mean? And we live in an age of Google where all of these facts are at the ready. It's hard because we want to believe that the police are heroes, right? We want to believe that. But we say things like there's no such thing as a good cop, right? We will say, like, how could you say that? Or, and I'll say, well, why didn't one of the good cops stop George Floyd or Eric Garner or Sandra Bland's death? Like, why didn't they intervene? It's because the whole system is, is it's screwed up. If we looked at it, it, it from a corporate structure, right, there's this new CEO and, it, and they're going to revamp this company from top to bottom. And you say, well, why doesn't reform work? Because we've been in a reform age since, I don't know, I guess Rodney King, right? The answer to everything has been reform, reform, reform. There's been training after training, and it just doesn't seem to work. Right. But in, the, in this sort of utopian world that, I mean, I, I do consider it a utopian society if we didn't need police officers. I mean, what do you imagine there would just be no crime at that point? Is that is that the world you're talking about? Nah, brother. If I'm, I'm <laughs> from the South Bronx, okay. If, if we did police in an instant, it'd be the people with the biggest guns and yeah. the worst attitudes who would take over. Right. So we have to develop, right. uh, yeah, just just a new form of making people obey the laws, eliminate the need for you know I, and i reiterate that for crime like you don't care about the law if your rents do your lights are about to be cut off and your kids are hungry right you're going to do what you got to do to feed your family and that's black white that's whoever you know what i mean you're going to do what you got to do to feed your family so if if that person had say something like universal basic income or or, or if there was just more A social jobs, safety net yeah, you know, with that, and, and and you know, I'm. This is this is what always gets me about conservatives, right? They always say we don't want big government, but like, what's the worst form of big government? It's the police coming in your home, telling you what to do, telling what you do in the streets, and in your cars. And I'm like, hello, you should be with me on this. You know what I mean? Like, but uh, yeah, yeah. So um, I I just think it's about. It's like, let's stop talking about topical issues and let's start talking about root causes, right? Like, like you go to a doctor with uh, a sneeze and some symptoms. He's looking for what's causing that. He's not just there to treat that 
you know, to that runny nose. He's not just handing you a tissue for your one runny nose and telling you to leave. He wants to get to the root of the issue. Right. I think that's and, the and this is a topic we brought up a lot in our podcast, actually, the systemic issues that are facing these communities before you even get to crime. Why crime is a thing in these communities is part of the systemic challenges that we're facing, for sure. Yeah, how do you fix these inequities? Yeah. So, so David and, and Hawk, this is a question for both of you guys. It's evident that you both, in my opinion, in viewing sort of where you're coming from, disagree on the economic system that our country should be run on. David, as an economist, you favor capitalism. And Hawk, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I've seen, you prefer a kind of democratic socialism. Have you both had a discussion or debate on the topic? Um, well, we talked some about it. I, I'm, I favor a bottom-up capitalism. I, the problem with the current system right now is way too much top-down. And it's so much of the income is distributed through the equity markets. And a lot of, a lot of the reason for that is just the nature of our, of our system. It's different from the European system. If you have a company in Europe, you go to one of their big banks to get it financed. In our country, you go to the stock market, you're the equity markets. I had, couldn't go into all these details in the film, but the reality is, since the globalization has set in 30 years ago, we have had record low interest rates. And uh, that may help the average working family to buy things cheaper at Walmart, but it's meant flat to negative wages. At the same time, if you owned equities, if you owned stock, which is half the country, you'd spit a bonanza. So you have half the country has under both Democrats and Republicans own stock. They've gotten this windfall because you know low interest rates are good for stock, and because of these global developments, saving shifts, everything that's fine for them. But we have a country that cannot sustain itself when you have the other half that didn't own stock, own wages, and the wages have been flat or even negative. That is not a sustainable uh, system of capitalism, and also the the lack of opportunity. I mean. 30 years ago, you could rise up to the top if you got the right education, worked hard, and maybe had some luck, but you, you, could, you could do it. Now, the, um, you're not seeing that kind of mobilization, and that's, that's very frustrating if you are sitting there and you say, you know, that the, and let me just end this real quickly. Startups are the most exciting part of the economy because they are the great equalizer. And you're seeing that women starting firms at twice the rate of men. You're seeing immigrants are, are responsible for a huge bulk of our startups. If you are African-American and you want, to, you want to be an entrepreneur, you want to start a business, it is much more difficult to get risk capital. There, I talk to these venture capital guys, African-Americans who say, in order to go to the money guys, I have to bring a white guy with me. I, and, and the white guy doesn't, isn't really part of our firm. He's just there as window dressing because I can't get the funding. It's much tougher. And I think that's a real problem for capitalism because the way that, that uh, to opportunity is, is this kind of startup culture that's that where a guy has an idea and he starts a company and gets financing. He starts employing his friends, his family, and it gets bigger and bigger. That's I'm I'm into that kind of capitalism that says, you know, in if you are a waitress, you you have the opportunity if, to own the restaurant, and if you're driving a truck, you should have the opportunity to own the trucking company. Instead, we have this thing that if you if you drive the truck, that's all you're going to do. You're never going to rise up any higher because there, there's so much pushing you down, keeping you there, and and certainly you'll never get the financing to run the uh, the uh, to buy your own trucking company. So that that's my form of capitalism. Yeah, that's sort of like a progressive capitalist approach. I agree with you. Yep. So what about you, Hawk? How do you think, feel about economics in general? Yeah. A lot of I'm I'm what you might call a champagne socialist, right? <laughs> I think that, that that you can have your Maserati, you can have your house in the hills, you could even own an island, but at the same time, no one should be homeless and no one should be without health care, and people shouldn't have to pay for higher education, right? Um, there's been something that I call shrewd capitalism for a long time, 
And that's just like, uh, make a buck, be greedy, push everyone down. You don't care what you do to the planet or to the people, as long as you and your friends are getting rich. And that's destroying our country. It's destroying our future. And, um, you know, I have a lot of friends that identify as democratic socialists. I don't think that I'm a, a die hard socialist as much as I am a, a, a shrewd pragmatist. Right. Okay. Right. Like, yeah. I think that's a, a, a good distinction to make. Yep. Absolutely. And um, I, I'm, I'm just, I don't know. I, I follow the teachings of Christ, man. Yeah. If your neighbor is, is thirsty, give him a cup of water. Right. Yeah. Jesus went around. Je Jesus went around, you know, uh, healing people. He didn't ask if they had single payer, single payer health care or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like I think that's something all of us here can get, can definitely rally around. Rob and I have discussed in the podcast before healthcare is important and no matter what side of the aisle you on, we need a solution in this country that maintains the private system, but also creates a public healthcare system that everyone can have. I call my, my view. I, I say at the film, I believe in good shepherd model of capitalism which is we got we must all move ahead we cannot afford to leave anyone behind and i do think there's a there's a real element there that uh, you know there's a uh, the word i use hawk is um, a ruthless capitalism and, and mm -hmm. capitalism has become ruthless in the last couple decades and and if you go back and read adam smith the founder of capital that wasn't the capitalism he was talking about he he never, he wasn't talking about this enormous greed of take it all and keep it all. It was a, it was very much a, um, a moralistic kind of element that said, well, if you organize the economy this way, you can better all of society. But that's not happening under this kind of a ruthless system. We've allowed it to become ruthless. And it's really, um, I mean, that's, that's one reason I did this film is I just think that, you know, there is a third way that says, it's a good shepherd capitalism and it, and it recognizes that's that's it's similar to uh, you know we were justin and i on one of our podcasts were discussing you know we both we both are, are proud capitalists but we were discussing the idea that um minority communities have because of the systemic injustices that we we've been talking about since since slavery have been deprived uh by government order essentially uh, the benefits of capitalism. And that is the part that's not fair. So what I want is not socialism, but more capitalism for everyone. Yeah, because what capital right, and healthcare access for to the capital. I, I want, you know, uh, in, in minority communities, I want ownership for everyone. I want building of wealth, generational wealth. That is all products of capitalism. Whereas if you, uh, you know, I would hate for us to get on an equal plane and then nobody has any access to capital and nobody's able to buy that Lamborghini or the Maserati. You know what I mean? What I think when, when true economic equality happens, that's when racial justice is going to truly be provided. When we are all finally have wealth and we're all sharing in this capital system. That's my, my you thought. Know, I, I, I've been pushing this idea, and I mentioned it in the film, but the idea of giving every child at birth or giving every giving people on the, who don't own stocks a $10,000 loan, some would say five, ten, whatever the number, that's payable in 60 years with a lump sum interest, that's invested in a stock index fund. And you, and you say, why, why do that? Because the reason Warren Buffett got rich was because capital compounds. They asked Einstein, do you believe in miracles? And he said, yes, I believe in the miracle of compound interest. It just compounds, it gets bigger and bigger. So a $10,000 investment in a stock fund for given to a kid in, in the Bronx who was just born, given to his parents, it's locked in. The kid will be a millionaire by the time he's, by the time he's 60. But you can particularly if you can add to that account and, and also at some point use some of it for education. But we have an entire generation that's cut out of all that. And if and and I've had conservatives attack me and I said, Well, look, how can you know you you weren't upset in two thousand eight when we were giving lending the Wall Street banks trillions, trillions. Yeah. We're talking about peanuts here, you know. Um 
And uh, but I think we've got to we've got to have a completely new way of doing capitalism, and, and it's a capitalism with a heart, and it's a capitalism for all, not the the ruthless little group that kind of says, "Well, we have the dough, and we're going to keep compounding it, and you don't." And then you know. Yeah, and I'm talking about even an even deeper issue. You know, I live in Los Angeles. I'm from New York, so. Uh, you know, both both of these states have communities like in L.A. We have communities in South L.A. that have been deprived of quality education, deprived of good health, deprived of opportunity, deprived of capital investment for generations and nothing has changed. And that's the problem. That's where all these problems come from. I think the film does a great job at laying that out. but. Why is it that people don't hold this to be truth? Why do, Why is it that when you say things like that, people there are a lot of people out here that believe the systemic uh, racism is a is a myth, and that's because we have talking heads on these news shows. That's because we have uh, politicians, and these people are making a career off of keeping the truth from the people. Right at the end, at the end of the day, like like what it what 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 it comes down to is is it's it's classism, right? The 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 only thing that poor white folks have that poor black folks don't have is the ability to say that they're white and better than blacks, right? And politicians feed off of this, and and you you start talking about what you know what David laid out in the film, and that was like okay, these loans were systemically held back from people okay we know this now where do we go right like like where do we go how do we try to fix this how do we remove the impediment to our growth you know one of the things that we do you know, we point out in the film is that you know if you own if you're uh, you know multi-billionaire who owns a facebook or one of the uh, or google one of the big social media outlets you know it seems to me they, they have no accountability because the reality is that if you were to do what, what Hawk is saying, or if you were to come in with a, a progressive but positive agenda that said, um, live, here's how to, to make things better for the black community, here's how to make things better for the country, you, know, you get no clicks on social media. You get social media if you talk hate, if you talk, if you talk extremism, and, you, and you, you put down the other side, and that, to me, and they're they're getting rich doing it, and no one holds them accountable. No one says brings them into Congress with both Republicans and Democrats together asking the question: We cannot have a sustainable political system if if the clicks are essentially driving media coverage. And I, I watched um, I won't say what channel I watched Hawk on some channel, uh, <laughs> and they were just like baiting and say I, I just said. All they, all they were looking for is like get him to say something so that we can get some click. The more, yes, that's right. The more money. It's money drives media, and we can't have our news delivered by people who are making money off of it because it will always, it will always lean towards the 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 loudest voice being the most uh, radical. And yeah. there's no room for that median, that middle ground, uh, when the radical voices are getting the most airtime. You know, a great, a great example of this, just recently, Justin and I were talking about this in one of our podcasts, there was that meeting that Joe Biden did with Barack Obama, where B Obama was almost sort of interviewing him, and they were, they were doing the social distancing thing, and it was like a good hour long of an of a interview, and they maybe talked about Trump for two minutes, and it was at the end, they mentioned him just in passing, and the next day, the headline from the Washington Post was something like, you remember what it was, Justin? Obama and Biden troll Trump. Troll Trump, right. I'm like, that's what you got out of this? Like, did you actually watch the interview? You took the one thing they said about Trump, and it wasn't even that divisive. It and it was just so clear that they were just going for the click because that's how they get money. You know, people will click on Obama and Biden troll Trump, they'll click on that. If they actually wrote the truth in their headline, they, they'll have less chance of, of getting clicks, you know? So it, it's it's definitely, it's a system that is out of control, for sure. Yeah, it's very disturbing. It's because, you know, I sat there and I said, these guys don't have a clue. 
here you got Hawk. This is the biggest heart guy with the biggest heart of anyone I've seen because I know his personal life. It's like the things he's done. And I said, what is this? Everything is for a little cheap maneuver to get some clicks and then you move on to the next story and all that. And yeah, it's really, it's really sad. And I do think that a large part of the country is waking up, or at least I hope. I hope so. That's what we're trying to do here. So, Hawk, I have a, a specific question for you, a topical question. Uh, in many okay. of the, the interviews that uh, that we've seen with you, you mentioned that the biggest problem facing the black community today is food injustice. Can you discuss where personal responsibility comes into play and how you believe this has come to be an injustice? Because that's something I haven't heard very many people talk about. Yeah, um, well, the Black Panthers actually thought that the that food injustice was a was a very serious issue, and that's why they used to they started the Free Panthers Free Food Program. Um, a lot of people talk about the number one killers of Black folk, and they're like, "Oh, it's the police, it's other Black." No, that's not it. It's actually the food that we put in our bodies. We all know that food that comes from the earth that is healthy for you cost far more than food that has an abundance of preservatives right and a bunch of you know just crap in it is completely unhealthy so yes uh you can say personal responsibility but um dr mark hyman has has spoken a lot on the topic of how their these food companies these these big beverage uh, uh and fast food companies actually come up with uh, mixes of ingredients that get people addicted, right? He also talks about how sugar is addictive. So, so it's like you know me getting you hooked on cocaine and saying, "Hey, where's your professional? Um, you know, where's, where's your personal responsibility?" Right? Yeah, yeah. You're wandering the streets like a little crack zombie, right? Right. But no, this is the um, this is the reality of it, and um, st studies have also shown that people who with better diets that that include supplements are less likely to be violent toward one another. Right. Study was done in a jail. Um, if people are healthy, they are more productive. You have to talk about, you know, the mental health aspects of it. And these these poisonous, these toxic foods are are really killing us and harming us in so many ways. And it's like, okay, so when do we shift to uh, plant based diets in schools, or at least say eighty percent plant based? It's like, okay, then you have to look at who's making money off of us being sick. You know what I mean? It, 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 there's just there's just so much to it and if we could just really get to a place where people have open honest discussions and when i like to point out facts i like to point out facts to people from both uh conservative scholars and liberal scholars and show people where they meet in the middle because here you have some of the smartest people in the country saying the same things and um just want to be clear i got about three percent left on this macbook Okay. Uh, <laughs> Hawk, I've noticed in your interviews that you approach everything you do as a peacemaker first. And I love that. In the spirit of that ideal, uh, this podcast and the film, which are all sort of all partisan, what does the Black Lives Matter movement gain by their alignment with the Democrats and Act Blue? Wouldn't the organization be better served by opening their doors to the GOP and GOP donations as well? I am uh, an independent organization. Black Lives Matter Greater New York is one of the um, most notable. Black Lives Matter groups in the country. Uh, there was an article in USA Today pretty much calling my sister Shavonna Newsom Harriet Tubman, and I've been teasing her. <laughs> I was like, oh, really? What about all this? <laughs> but no, we, 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 we get a lot of attention. I think a lot of the times why conservatives listen to me, they love to hate me, but there's a lot to really listen to me, yeah. is because I aim my gun at all offenders i don't care if you're a blue offender or a red offender if you're screwing over not just black people but the american people i have a problem with you amen you that's know? why we're here Absolutely. So, so so like like you, you have to understand like um really looking for ways to get people inspired about this election you know and um, what it what it might take is for um, you know for Joe Biden to really sit down and talk to people who are really out here in the streets marching that are disengaged because the people who are shaping the world right now the people who are forcing legislation are the people who are out marching all the time 
and they really have little to no faith in the American government. That's right. Right. So we need politicians to really sit down with these people, put, okay, I'm not going to dislike you because you're conservative or a Democrat. I'm not going to dislike, they're not going to dislike us for being activists or radicals or extremists or whatever, not terrorists, Mr. Trump, but um, <laughs> like, 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 and, and we just really have to sit down and say, okay, here's what we can work on together. Like, I think groups like there's a lot of black groups to speak for black people that are way too tied into the democratic party. And it, it nauseates me. No, I love this yeah. sentiment. I, yeah. I love what you have to say. I wish, I wish I could copy and paste it. So to everywhere It's fantastic. Really. Are you familiar with Kim Klasik in Baltimore? Yeah. 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 I've been, I, well, my, my knowledge of her is one-sided it's memes attacking her and her husband that I feel on social media. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, so I definitely have to look into her. And right. listen, I support people in all professions, and and you know people want to you know they want to make runs and, and and as long as she's really about people and this isn't like a publicity stunt or something like you know then 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 I mean you, you know, don't care I, that you don't care if she's a Republican as long as she's working for a good cause. Let me tell you, okay, some of my mentors, right? have been like these old white Republican men. Yeah. No, and I'm talking like people who have really impacted my life. Like we go head to head on politics, but we just, I don't know, my, one of my closest friends, his name was Bob Spear. He was like this 80 something year old Jewish man. And we used to just sit back and, 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 and eat sushi and talk for hours and be loud and obnoxious on the Upper East Side. And like we were close, you know? Like we were, we were just really close. So I understand both sides. Like I live by a philosophy. I talk to the janitor the same way I talk to the CEO. Amen. Yeah. That's, that's really taking me pretty far in life. That's amazing, man. Really. Yeah. I was, I mean, it's sad something that, you know, when you do a film, you have all these producers and all the rest and they, they give you all this data. The most popular line in the film is Hawk who says, America beats the crap out of us, but we still love our country. And mm. I, I mean, it's off the charts. I, mean, I love that. I, I, I hope that all members of the Black Lives Matter community and all, and all other social support systems understand how powerful that line was because it was a pushback to those who were trying to caricature, you know. Mm. Your uh, your work and other the work of others as it basically said uh uh-uh, uh you can't, you're not going to put us in the little corner as a, as a bunch of anarchists who hate the country no we want change and uh, we'll throw things out to 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 get to get an effect but we want change but we are not we're not a destructive force we're a positive force and I think it's powerful that. It, it, you know, and, and, and the reality is when all these people see it, they check off, they watch the film. What, what was the, what was the most compelling line? That could, and that, that was the line. That line. That's yeah. amazing. Well, Hawk, uh, we're going to let you go since you probably only have 1% now. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate yeah, it. I really appreciate it. Right. Listen, this was, this was great. Um, is, is, is terrible as things are in the world i'm just glad that we could come together and have this conversation and it'd be cool like you know we don't have to agree on everything but we can laugh make our points and it and it's and there's grace i think grace is that's what it's all about I, for us i love i love the spirit in which you do these things hawk it's it's been a yeah. pleasure to to talk to you and to watch you uh you know on the internet as well thank you and i'll be a crazy man full on tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> all right man thank you so, David, tell us uh, where we can find you on social media and when and where we can see the film. Okay, the film was, um, first of all, I, I, I think I mentioned before, I'm very proud that it's uh, executive produced by the Hollywood um, icon, director Barry Levinson, who did Rain Man, won the Academy Award for that, and a lot of other films. And, um, but the film was purchased, the rights were purchased by Stars, and they will have their their big grand preview of the film on September the 21st, but it's available now on demand and it's on Apple TV and Amazon and YouTube and several others. You can go on the, uh, the website, which is 
one word, starsandstrife.com, and that's strife, S-T-R-I-F-E, dot com. And, that, and you can see the two-minute trailer. And often people who watch the trailer, I wouldn't say often, almost every time somebody watches the trailer, they immediately say, I've got to see this film. It's, it's a powerful That's how film. I felt. That's how I felt. I watched the trailer, and I put it right on my list of movies yeah. I got to watch. And I will say this. Um, we, Tom Freeman of the New York Times tweeted the other day, if you have not watched Stars and Strife, stop everything you're doing and go watch this film. It gets it perfectly. Empathy. That's a great endorsement, too. Yeah, and, and look, uh, we second it. So, you know, yeah. go see Stars and Strife. It tackles an issue we talk about nonstop on this podcast, and we absolutely endorse this film. So go check it out on demand now. David, thank you so much for bringing Hawk, for being on the show. We really appreciate your time. You guys are having fun, I can tell. You, we you, are. You really are. Good. All right. I'll talk Thanks, to you man. Soon. Thanks Bye-bye. so much. Great to meet you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. That about does it for the week. Make sure to tune in next week for an exciting new episode of the podcast. I am sure some RNC discussion will ensue. Make sure you go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on air. Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Five stars, people. Five stars. Visit our Discord. You can mix it up with us. Let's talk politics and buy some merch while your friends by promoting moderate change incrementally. The links are all in our bios on our socials. Have a great rest of the week, everyone, and we'll see you soon.